This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. A judge puts a temporary injunction on a state law banning school mask mandates. This comes from a challenge to Senate Bill 658 by the State Medical Association and parents who say the ban is unconstitutional as it violates a child's right to a free education in a safe environment. Ryan, why did the judge make this ruling? Well, the crux of the ruling comes down to the distinction that lawmakers made between public and private schools. And I think that if they had not done that in this piece of legislation, that Judge Mai would not have ruled the way that they did because we saw that that was the thing that really caught the judge's attention. And and that's where they thought that this law ran afoul of the state constitution and possibly the federal constitution. The United States Department of Education and Department of Justice are also looking at Oklahoma as well in in a separate matter that may come at some other point and the mask mandate or lack of mask mandates in Oklahoma. But because Oklahomans were able to send their kids to private schools where there could be a mask mandate, And Oklahoma public schools were prohibited from having a mask mandate, at least ostensibly. I mean, we saw some school districts go afoul of that or possibly not go afoul of it, try to thread a needle with some of the language in the in the law itself. But because of that distinction, the judge said that, you know, this this violated the the rights of students and parents to be able to not have to send their kids to private school in order to be able to be protected. And I can tell you, as a parent of a uh, first grader and a fourth grader, here in Oklahoma City Public Schools. I've been incredibly grateful for the leadership here where my kids have been able to go to school and knowing that most of their students, most of their fellow students, most of their teachers wearing masks. That's not the case around the state, Mike. And we're seeing school districts close down as a result of that. I have a nephew in, in Seminole County. His school has closed down until Tuesday. Other schools in Seminole County have closed down for uh, over a week at this. And we're seeing that as a result of kids not being able to wear a mask. And that's especially important for those kids 12 and under that aren't able to be vaccinated yet. Neva. Well, I think it's interesting. Judge Mai, while she said that the only issue, as we as we've just talked about before the court, was really whether the law is written as constitutional. But the other point that she made that I think is key to the conversation is that it is up to the legislature, she said, to determine policy and that the court will not substitute its judgment for that of lawmakers. So this becomes the friction of the public policy debate, the bills being passed, signed into law, and then the opportunity for those such as this this group of parents and the Oklahoma State Medical Association to take it to court and challenge it on uh, the question of whether or not it's constitutional, the points that Ryan was just mentioning. I think clearly there's a divide. Clearly the attorney general, when he spoke, said that while uh, they disagree that any part of this law is unconstitutional, that they will take time, they will look at uh, the legal strategy moving forward. And I think, you know, the governor also said from his standpoint that this was a victory for parental choice, personal responsibility, and the rule of law is the, is the, are the terms that he used. So it will be interesting to see. This is a temporary injunction that the judge made on Wednesday. We'll see what happens moving forward. But again, what we're seeing is this continuing struggle with the laws being passed and then the, the challenges that move forward on whether or not they're constitutional on the points that were made by this particular lawsuit. 
And, and Neva brought up an interesting point. She said Governor Stitt called this a victory. And just the political dynamics of this are really intriguing because both sides were declaring victory. The folks that wanted a mask mandate and didn't want this law to interfere with their ability to request that their local boards of education implement a mask mandate, they got to declare victory. Governor Stitt got to declare victory in saying that there's you know, still the option for parents to opt their students out of these mask mandates. And everybody gets to realize the benefit of what we hope will be an increased number of mask mandates around the state, even if parents are opting out. I suspect that will be a minority. I mean, we, we've seen that people sometimes just won't do the right thing unless they're required to do it. And I think that those mask mandates make a huge difference between what we've seen in Oklahoma City public schools versus what we've seen around the rest of the state. Hopefully everybody will get to enjoy that. And the politics, everybody gets to say that they won, well, which is which is kind of rare. That's interesting too, Ryan, because uh, the state superintendent, Joy Hoffmeister, later in the day after the ruling came was issued, basically said that the State Department of Ed would not enforce the mass mandate prohibition due to the pending litigation. Mm-hmm. So again, it's this constant uh, who's on first trying to uh, figure out what is a very hot topic, has been for months and months and months, and now we'll see what comes of this challenge to Senate Bill 658. Oklahoma Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen is returning home after attempting twice to enter Afghanistan. A report from The Washington Post says the District 2 Republican was trying to rescue five American citizens. Earlier this week, Mullen tried to get a helicopter to fly into Afghanistan, but his request was rejected. Neva, could the congressman face any blowback from this attempt? Well, I'm not sure he'll face blowback in his district for certain. I think as you see this story kind of roll out, I mean, the Washington Post earlier in this week broke the story. The Mark Wayne Mullen piece to this was really, I think, secondary to two congressmen, one Republican, one Democrat, who had gone to Afghanistan, had made it onto a empty military cargo plane, a lot of questions surrounding that. It was interesting. There's been more conversation. There's been more pointed conversation from the State Department, from the administration and others about those actions Mm -hmm. than anything related to Congressman Mullen. So I I think we don't know all of the details. I mean, he's made it clear in some social media communication of what he where he was, what he's done. But I think uh, when you look at the bigger picture, I mean, you have a lot of folks that are extremely frustrated with what has taken place. I think we won't see much more of this type of activity. I think Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader McCarthy both made it clear this week to their respective members that this is not something that should take place and that they certainly didn't want to see it see more of this going forward. So I think let's wait and see how it finally rolls out and what the real particulars are before we rush to judgment one way or the other. Ryan. Well, I got a text the other night from a friend who said, Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen has attempted to enter Afghanistan over the advice of the embassy and the United States State Department and military. And now no one knows where he, and I responded back, are you serious? And there was, there was another word in there, but I can't say that because we're on public <laughs> radio. And, and, you know, surely he found the, the Washington Post story and it was a wild ride to read for sure. I think that what the congressman has done, you know, may play well with a certain segment of the electorate, but at the end of the day for the responsible grownups in the room, I think that we've got to categorize what he did was reckless, irresponsible, and you know, self-centered hubris that took critical resources away from the most successful evacuation 
in the in America's history from a foreign land. And, you know, the fact that people from the State Department were spending time on the phone with him, getting screamed at apparently by off the record sources or background sources in this Washington Post story by a furious, outraged member of Congress who wanted to enact his own rogue mission and substitute his judgment for that of the United States military and go in. And if he'd been, if he'd made it in, and at this point, we're I'm not clear that he hasn't made it in or he didn't make it. I think that that, that may come to light at some point. But if he were there and he were in trouble, regardless of how reckless his actions would have been, the United States military would have come to his rescue and put other folks in jeopardy and in danger needlessly and, and all for, for something. You know, I, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there watching uh, PBS NewsHour every night and, and reading every word that I can read about what's happening in Afghanistan. And it's incredibly heartbreaking. And, you know, I, I think every one of us watching that wishes that we could pick up and do something, you know, whether that's helping somebody get out, making sure that people have resources that are that are stuck and remain there, whatever that is, short of continuing a 20-year war that's been a disaster for the United States, our allies, and ultimately the people of Afghanistan. So we'll see what happens once we see you know, more information coming out about this. But even his colleague, Congressman Cole, the best that he could say whenever he was asked about it by Oklahoma media earlier this week was he was glad to see that he was safe and he was glad to see that he was coming home. Neva? Well, I think the point that Congressman Mullen made, many others have made, certainly I think is the sentiment of many Oklahomans, is this frustration and this serious disappointment in the fact that we left Americans behind, that in this effort, you know, that all that transpired, getting as many folks out as we did, the fact that that there is a huge disappointment in that we did such a miserable job in getting our folks out in a mission and fashion that would have been by by many accounts of military people in in the Congress and others, everyone can quarterback it and be an armchair quarterback on this. But the bottom line is, I think there is a serious frustration. I think there's been a lack of transparency and openness by the Biden administration in terms of providing enough information from day one of the evacuation of what was going on. And these are the types of events that came about as a result of those actions and inactions. Governor Stitt says last year's Supreme Court decision on McGirt versus Oklahoma is the most pressing issue facing the state of Oklahoma. In a speech to the Tulsa Regional Chamber, Stitt says the ruling on tribal jurisdiction creates uncertainty, threatens Oklahoma's sovereignty, and is a public nightmare for victims and law enforcement. Neva, what are your thoughts on the governor's comments? Well, I mean, nothing really new. I mean, these comments came in in the uh, state of the state that the governor gave last week in Tulsa. And I think when you really look at those remarks again, I mean, he has he stated over and over and over again that this is his position. Obviously, the tribes uh, vehemently disagree with that position. It was a little ironic that it was just a few hours earlier in the day that the sentencing of McGirt himself Mm -hmm. was sentenced to believe it was three life terms by a federal court, you know, on, on, on that Tuesday a week ago. So we're going to continue to see this uh, very escalated rhetoric between uh, the governor, the attorney general, who now has at the behest of the governor hired a national law firm to uh, argue that the Supreme Court should reverse McGirt. And I think this is going to be an ongoing conversation in all quarters across Oklahoma. But long and the short of it is, I don't think we heard anything new. I think we just uh, continued to see the exchange between all parties on the issue of McGirt. Ryan. 
you know, as we sit here in September and when the governor gave these remarks in August of 2021, I think it's difficult for most Oklahomans to hear that McGirt is the top issue and the top concern or should be the top concern for Oklahomans when we have lost a number of Oklahomans right now that is equal about to the population of my hometown of Seminole, it added to the population of my wife's hometown of Wilburton. And we are in the middle of a new surge with the Delta variant, new variants emerging. And you know, we're, we're beginning to see you know, some, some real troubling signs ahead for what COVID's going to mean for the fall and upcoming winter. You know, hospital beds are maxed out. I looked at the, the state hospital dashboard earlier this morning, zero ICU beds available at major hospitals across the state of Oklahoma. That to me seems to be, and I think, you know, probably for most of Oklahoma to be the chief concern for, for our state right now. And if you look at the governor's comments, and as Neva said, they're, they're not really new. You know, he's, he's saying basically the same things over again. They just don't really match up or pair with the reality on the ground. Tribes and municipalities and county governments have been working together for a long time prior to McGirt with things like cross deputizations and intertribal municipal agreements. People are being prosecuted in Oklahoma. People are being arrested in Oklahoma. As chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin, has said, you know, whether you're prosecuted by a, a county government, state government, a federal government, or a tribal government, you will be prosecuted in Oklahoma. I mean, the idea that, that criminals are acting with impunity and it's, it's creating this dark cloud over uh, Oklahoma, like we're Gotham City or something like that, and only only you know some some you know superhero can come save us from the the terror of McGirt. That's just not really happening. And even mentioned, I mean, one of the the named individuals in this whole matter was sentenced to three life terms. I've visited with criminal defense lawyers that have had uh, clients move from state court to federal court where the federal sentencing laws were harsher. And they had better deals at the state level that were taken off the table because they were moved to a uh, federal jurisdiction. As a criminal justice reformer, I'm not saying that harsher penalties is, is really the direction that we should be going. But to say that what we've created is this matter of lawlessness in Oklahoma just doesn't really play itself out. I think that if there is any uncertainty moving forward with McGirt, you know, if people do have question marks, those question marks need to be resolved by state leaders, tribal leaders, and Congress. And right now, two of those three uh, parties are ready to be at the table to talk about those uncertainties. And that's the, the tribes and that's Congress. And the, the state administration seems just you know, decidedly stuck in this position of wanting to fight with the tribes and fight with the concept of sovereignty. So the idea that we're going to have resolution through you know, folks sitting down together seems like a, a real you know, fantasy at this point. And I think that's right, Ryan, when you look at the, at least at this point, just based on comments made uh, during this time frame uh, a week ago, where the governor basically said in his comments that McGirt threatens Oklahoma sovereignty. And then you have Principal Chief Hoskins saying that in their estimation that the state is undermining tribal sovereignty. And so this impasse that we've talked about for, for now months and months and months continues to see no real change, but I think we'll continue to see the conversation going forward. And uh, clearly neither side appears to be willing to give very much uh, ground at this point. And we'll have to see what that means as, as Oklahomans follow this in the months to come. 
The state NAACP is challenging an Oklahoma law to crack down on protesters. House Bill 1674 taking effect November 1st increases penalties and fines for protesters and grants immunity for motorists if they kill or injure a protester. Ryan, do you think the NAACP can prevail here? It's it's a difficult legal argument because you're trying to argue that speech, that future speech is going to be chilled. That's a difficult legal argument to make. It's not an impossible one, and I think it's an important one to raise. This this law has been problematic from the very beginning. There was an effort by folks to collect signatures to put this on, on a ballot so that Oklahomans could vote on it. They fell short in their signatures, and I think that this lawsuit is probably the last resort to try to attack this before the upcoming legislative session where we'll probably see some laws that would try to at least, you know, create some better definition to this law. But as it stands, I mean, the idea that we needed a law to give people permission to act in self-defense just isn't true. It's not real. You know, if you're caught in a situation, we're not, you know, the Oklahoma law before this statute was passed didn't require people to sit in their cars and be, you know, murdered by a, a mob. They could escape. And DAs and police can always look at individual circumstances. They can say, was this self-defense? Was this negligence? Was this reckless? And they can make charges accordingly or not charge accordingly. But what this law is, I mean, we're we're talking about the difference between a defense, which existed before this law. You had a, a defense that you could raise if you were charged with running over somebody trying to escape a crowd. You always had that defense. What this law, I'm afraid, does is creates a license and an invitation. You know, what it says is, you know, the you can you can it's it's kind of a, akin to an attractive nuisance, meaning that the law might very well attract people to a protest that otherwise would have avoided the area because they feel they have special protection for any of their actions and that their decision to hit the gas and plow over people tilts in favor of using lethal force when before maybe considering all of the factors, the driver might have decided not to use their vehicle as a lethal weapon. And so I worry that a law like this is an invitation. I worry that it's a license and it is unnecessary because that defense existed before this law was ever passed. Neva. Well, I think the question of whether or not the law is needed, I think that will have to be for the courts to decide in this situation. But, you know, House Bill 1674 basically is a law that said it protects law-abiding citizens who find themselves caught in the midst of a uh, dangerous or illegal actions through no fault of their own. And in this particular bill, it does maintain that individuals have a right to peaceably assemble. They have the right to uh, be secure. I think the wording in there is their life, liberty, and and property. It is a bill that clearly had uh, broad support in the legislature. Obviously, strong Republican-backed proposals like this have, have come forward you know, more and more in in recent sessions. But I think it's because in general, that is the sentiment that the public is wanting to see. And they're wanting to see lawmakers. And there's a push on lawmakers to make this clear. And as a result, I think that was what made House Bill 1674 become a reality. Over the summer, Oklahoma got official numbers from the U.S. Census. The biggest news is an increase in the population for the Oklahoma City and Tulsa metropolitan areas with a drop in rural parts of the state. Neva, how will this impact redistricting as lawmakers return for a special session later this year? Well, it won't impact it 
to the extent that they're not going to get their work done. I think mm-hmm. everyone was waiting. They had to wait longer than anticipated because of the numbers coming back much later than than was first than was kind of that was first said would happen in April. Then it actually was in the middle of August. But I think when you look at this. Lawmakers, as they were drawing their districts and beginning to kind of put things in place after much conversation, many opportunities for the public to engage in those conversations, they knew and they could get pretty close to what they projected the numbers were going to be. They didn't, there was no movement at all on the congressional lines. I mean, that that work will happen now that the hard number is there and there's less latitude theoretically on drawing the congressional lines than the House and Senate lines in the legislature where you can have a plus or minus uh, 2.5% in the population variance. So there'll be some adjustments. I think out of the 101 House districts, it was interesting. I think I saw that there were 38 that were kind of right on the money. And then you had 25 that were a little in excess and 38 that were short on population. So they'll massage those boundary lines. And I think that'll work fairly well. Senate have a few issues, you know, in terms of where those population boosts were, you know, particularly in the metropolitan areas and and make their allowances. But it is fascinating with the 200,000 growth in the state. I mean, that was uh, 5.5% significant. And now we have Oklahoma City with a population larger than Boston. I mean, I think folks uh, are seeing the real the real change that where we have, again, the continued shift from rural Oklahoma with loss in population into the metropolitan areas uh, surrounding Tulsa and Oklahoma City. So that will have a tremendous influence and impact going forward for the next decade in terms of just where the political clout and the and the numbers will be moving forward in terms of how this has implications overall. Ryan. Well, they're going to have a, I think, a really difficult time whenever you look at those Tulsa numbers, especially with some of these legislative seats, because you had you know, one Senate seat that I think was over you know 16,000. But the problem is that it's surrounded by seats that were also over, maybe not by as much, but they're also over. So you know, moving one of these seats around is going to move, you know, several others. And so I, I feel like, and I don't think that this was wrong, uh, a wrong assumption of legislative leaders that had been working on the redistricting plan. I think that there was a sense that they were going to walk in this fall with the maps that they had drawn based on the 2019 numbers and that they were going to essentially going to be able to say grace over the plans that they had drafted in the in the spring for the most part with some with some maneuvering and then of course drawing these congressional district lines i think the real effort that they're going to have to undertake here is going to be harder than that so they will be at the capitol longer uh at least the legislative leaders that that are drawing this i don't think that they're going to bring everybody back until they've got some plans for them to look at but you know one kind of ancillary thing to think about that is if lawmakers are going to be at the capitol for longer this fall does that begin to open the door for lawmakers and or the governor to start thinking about other items that they might want to address in a special session before they come back in february of 2022 if they're already going to be there and you know i i don't know that that's the case but i think that anytime you have you know a majority of lawmakers in a place like that together it's hard to get them to just focus on one single issue. Between the time they left in May to the time that they're going to be coming back this fall to deal with redistricting, they are going to have heard from their constituents about a number of issues, some of which they consider pressing and urgent, and may they may want to discuss during a special session as well. And I think, I think it is an open question on the special session, although I think probably at this point, smart money would bet on the fact that it will be a call 
that will be restricted to redistricting. I think the expectation, at least at this point, is that they'll come in, do that business, and go home and wait to come back in, in February to for the regular session. But anything is certainly anything's possible. And, and we've seen a very fluid political environment this past year. But I think in terms of the redistricting for the House and Senate, I think those numbers get adjusted, massaged, and worked out uh, fairly easily before they come back in. I think the congressional lines, I mean, you know, you see all of the different possibilities that could come into play in terms of what those districts now could look like. You know, in fact, the fifth district could be a district, Oklahoma County, a district unto itself, a congressional district, because it's actually got just probably 8,000 or something more than the number they need to be one district. Or will they split it up? Will they change the fourth district? And will it be more a triangle and take in Lawton up to Norman? I mean, there's all kinds of uh, conversations, I think, going on. I think it's important from the public standpoint to know that there are going to be, and the public is being strongly invited to uh, submit their own proposals and ideas on congressional redistricting to the House and Senate, and also to participate in some public meetings, one of which I think takes place the middle of October, Mm -hmm. and they'll have a virtual town hall in the middle of September. So this is an opportunity for the public, not to say after the fact, you know, this was done under some cloud of secrecy and no one had any input, they'll have the same input on the congressional lines that they had earlier this year when there were regional meetings and and Zoom meetings and other meetings to allow them to have uh, their say and input on House and Senate boundaries. And Neva, thanks for bringing that up, that you know, folks should weigh in. I think that there's a public hearing. Don't get me wrong. I think it's September 15th, but you, know, you can go to the Oklahoma House, Oklahoma Senate website and find information about those participate. The 5th District could look very different. And if you live in Oklahoma County, which is, you know, largely the fifth district at this moment, then I think that, you know, folks, as you, as we've seen Eastern Oklahoma County over the last several years, a lot of the folks in Eastern Oklahoma County may feel like they have more in common with people in the second district than they do in the fifth. And so, you know, and, and vice versa. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things that could happen there, but the congressional districts will be really interesting to see how that shakes out, especially when we think about upcoming congressional races, which you know, Oklahoma stands to be, you know, in the spotlight again as Congresswoman Vice tries to defend her seat against, you know, now the apparent Democratic challenger, Abby Broyles. Yeah. So that'll, that'll be an interesting map and may determine how that election shakes out. You know, it is interesting. Oklahoma and Tulsa counties now make up almost 40 percent um, of the total population in our state. And when you take into account in the Oklahoma City metropolitan area that three of the four counties have the largest population in the state, which would be Oklahoma, Cleveland, and Canadian counties. I mean, we're seeing now the picture after the census numbers are finalized and we're now able to really start delving into them and look at them, how the uh, political landscape and how the socioeconomic landscape of the state is has uh, changed in the last decade and how we might envision that will change even more in the coming decade. Aniva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.